Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you here tonight for the satsang to continue with the yogic reading of some of the so-called love poems of Rumi. Most of everything which Rumi wrote in his mystical career came mostly from the heart. We can sometimes find things of great purity which come from Vishuddha Chakra, and sometimes Rumi has even a certain degree of clairvoyance when he talks about the structure of the atom or when he talks about the galaxies and the things of the universe, and that will come from Ajna Chakra. So, if we want an engineering analysis, it's like there is some 80-90% Anahata with some addition of Vishuddha, of Ajna Chakra. Therefore, he writes in the very high levels, he writes uh, at an exquisite level when we study the literature of the world in the last two, three thousand years, what we know, there is very little which goes at that level. Therefore, um, not only that we try to understand the mood, the emotion, the chakra, but we also try to see the universal truths. The God that Rumi felt, just not to say saw, because it's more than seeing, is the same with the God Ramakrishna was talking about, and it is the same with the absolute consciousness that Shankara or Abhinavagupta were talking about. And that's why um, we try to see this overwhelming flow. Somehow this month in the previous satsang with Rumi and in the previous one again with the fathers of the desert, especially the ones from Sinai, we were looking very much into this path of the heart. The heart is like a, an altar, it's like a burner, it's like a lamp which burns with a fire which goes towards the divine levels. As Muladhara is the vitality of the being, Anahata Chakra and Hrid Chakra, they are the vitality of the soul. This is from where the soul gets its momentum to rise, to stand vertically. And uh, therefore this devotional path is very beautiful and it has this advantage which those of you who have followed the last two satsangs have seen for sure that it is very simple. There is not much technology for it. There is just a madness. With yoga, there is a technology. And if you don't do the shoulder stand the right way, you might damage something in your neck, such as your vertebras or something in the area of the neck. If you don't do Udhyana Bandha or Nauli Kriya right, either you don't succeed or they will have a very diminished effect and so on. There is a lot of technology and a lot of know-how. But for these crazy people, for these people who are possessed by just a, an urge, a desire that we call Ishvara Pranidana, there is uh, no 
not too much technology. It's true, Rumi invented this spinning dance, this dervish dance, and some of the Christian mystics invented the prayer of the heart. But comparing them with the six yogas of Naropa from Tibet, or comparing them with the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the Hatha and Kundalini traditions of Matsyendra and Goraksha, uh, this is a childishly simple technology. It's not at all elaborate. Once more, I don't want to spoil the poetic flavor, because trying to analyze the poetry, there is this beautiful scene in the good to see, good to watch movie for teachers, those who want to be teachers, they should definitely see that movie once in their life, The Dead Poets Society, where this guy is put to analyze uh, poetry, and he's reading from the handbook, and it's a guy called Pritchard or something, who says that you should draw a line like this, and a line like this, and if the poem is like this, then the surface is, and, and, and he says, rip that page off. He says, rip the whole chapter better, you know, because this Pritchard, he's an idiot, you know. It's like you cannot measure poetry by the amplitude of the words. It's something, how do you measure a Japanese haiku or some other similar poetry? How do you analyze a koan and how do you analyze the insane poetry of Rumi where he calls God his girlfriend and he experiences a relationship like he is being caressed by his girlfriend and turned on by the invisible hand of God. What is this, some sort of erotomania? Is this some sort of, you know, it's a mystical madness which has been all over and that's why you can't explain them, but we can try to find out that in yoga, the same truths are governing, especially for the part of bhakti yoga. It's very clear, if you don't have this kind of madness, then you will have to use more technology. If you are already in love with eternity, if you are already in love with the absolute, and love is a very big word, maybe not in love, but attracted by the mystery of it, challenged in some way, if you are, then 80% of the path is done already. Either because you have done yoga in previous lives or for whichever reason, but then you, are, you have done a great part of the path. So those of you who have this attraction, who say, I don't know why, but I find no other great meaning in life. I want to go there. I then it's a mystery. Why? Why are you blessed? Is it a blessing or a madness? Ramakrishna didn't know. He said, maybe I'm crazy. Why does everybody want to have a house and a piece of land and 15 kids? And I don't want, and I'm getting bored by it. You know, and it's like, that means maybe that I have a loose screw in my head. Something is wrong. You know, and Bhairavi Brahmani, who was his guru and who was a crazy woman in the same way crazy, she told him this is not a madness. Not only because it's a spiritual thing and all the rest, but look at the people who had this madness. From Jesus to Krishna and from Buddha to Rumi, what have they given to the world? If they would have been crazy, 
No, they would have killed somebody. They would have done monstrous things. They would have done Genghis Khan things. They would have, you know, they would have created monstrosities because you can say they didn't care about humanity. They didn't care about the normal people. They just had a, you know, and they were crazy. They were dangerous schizophrenics. It has been said by uh, communist authors in Russia in the time of Stalin and so on that Jesus was probably a schizophrenic. But if he was a schizophrenic, then why didn't he do shit? Why did he do something which benefited humanity greatly? If Buddha was a schizophrenic weirdo, then why his schizophrenia gave moral codes, ethical codes, behavior and wisdom, clarity, the four noble truths about life, you know, like things which have guided humanity, at least in the part where he lived, in the part of the world where he lived, For 25 centuries. So it's the same here. This mystical thing is interpreted sometimes like a madness. Like why do some people have it and some people don't have it. And the people who have it, they are sometimes modest and humble about it. They say, you know, maybe all of you are blessed because you can be happy with small things. You can have small things and they make you happy. But me, if you offer to me what makes you happy, I'm going like, you know, I don't want it. It doesn't make me happy. It's not enough. I would commit suicide if that's what I would know that life has to offer. You know, it's not worth living the life then. So maybe I'm handicapped. You are all adapted, well-adapted people. You live in the world and you are happy with what, you know, you've got two kids, you've got a dog, You've got a job, you've got, and you are happy, and then you get old, and you fade slowly, slowly, and one day you just die, you know, and then you say, well, what to do? That's what life is. People have to put up with what is given to them, you know. Other people say, no, no, tell me from the beginning, if that's what you want to give me, I will take my life now. I will refuse to live it like this. I don't want to live it like this. If that's all that life has to offer, it's dead boring. It's, you know, and... I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, you know, but like I am a bit crazy, you know. I'm not capable to be happy with what life offers to normal people. I want more. And actually, I want much more, you know. The first PhD on yoga written by Mircea Eliade in 1932 or 33 is called Yoga Dash, whatever, Immortality and Freedom. These are huge words, you know, that you do yoga because you want immortality. Immortality, for God's sake, I'm seeking for immortality. Like Rumi is seeking for immortality. And freedom. Free. Who is free? Who is free? Look at the history of this planet. Who is free? Now, even Genghis Khan, who was one of the greatest despots and rulers, he was not really free. He depended on so many contingencies and so many factors in the civilization around him. Who is free? No. So too. That's why there are crazy people like Rumi who look for immortality and freedom. They are not satisfied with a suburban house and uh, driving a car and you know and then getting to retirement and you know they, that is way too flat, way too boring. For them, And thus, those who are 
blessed with this. Again, it's debatable and scientifically, exactly as we cannot demonstrate the existence of God, there's never been anybody who demonstrated the existence of God. Even Jesus, who apparently did things in the name of God, people around him, he said he's possessed by the demons, he does things with the devil. No, but okay, at least those people believed that there was a devil. You know, but other people simply said he was schizophrenic. And there are people today who say he was like Mickey Mouse. He is an invention. Jesus didn't even exist physically. It's just a figment. Some people created a fake character and they called him Jesus and all that. No? So that's why I say who demonstrated the existence of God? Why? I told you a hundred times and every beginner hears it in Agama in the lecture about uh, Aparigraha, detachment. Because God has made a law by which the people on this planet, at the level of development of this yuga and at the level of development of the human being, they are not allowed to have a proof. You can have a proof only after you acted as if you had the proof already. When you gave your life to this, then God says, I couldn't fool you, I could not keep you in darkness. You behaved as if you knew already the answer. But everybody says, I wish I could see the answer before, so it would give me belief. It would give me faith. It would give me like I'm not standing sitting there and wondering, what am I doing? Am I crazy? Am I wasting my life on some stupid ideal, on some dream? You know, That's part of the test. People who want to do spirituality on this planet, they have to go through this torture that for 40 years, you don't know if you took the right path or not. You don't know if you are an idiot wasting your life on some bizarre, you know, immortality and freedom, for God's sake, you know. How much of a dreamer can you be, you know? And therefore, you don't know. There is no proof. You just have to go on with this dream. In the magnificent book of Hermann Hesse, called the glass bead game or something, uh, approximate translation, the game with the glass beads. Um, there are, in the end, Joseph Knecht, the hero of this, who is the master of this game. It's a game which is philosophical, aesthetical, some Vishuddha figment of Hermann Hesse. Uh, that guy, when he was a teenager in school, he wrote three short stories. Which, of course, they are written by Hermann Hesse. There is no Joseph Necht. He's a fictional character imagined by Hermann Hesse. And in the end of the book, they are given the, those three novels. And one of them is about two Christian mystics, Dion Pujil and another one whose name I forgot. You know? And it's an absolutely insane story because one of them loses his faith he, he is simply crushed by this, that he doesn't know. He can't continue. It's like he is fake. It's like he is living a false life, really. Now, what am I sitting here and doing? He was one of the fathers of the desert, this Dion Pujil and the other. And he said, I'm sitting here and searching for God, and I don't even have a proof that God exists. And I have been so devoted to my goal for 20 years, and now it's kind of enough is enough. I'm getting to be 40 years old, 45 years old. It's like, I can't take it anymore. And then he goes to the other, because there was another famous one. And he said, maybe that one will take me as his disciple. 
and he goes and actually he meets with that one but he doesn't know it is him in an oasis along the path and then he says oh and the guy says I am Dion Pujil and so on no? and he says I lost my faith completely I came to be maybe to you take me to be your apprentice to be your pupil because it's and Dion Pujil takes him and they go back to the place of Dion and there he lives for another 20 years and full on Christian asceticism like you saw with the fathers of the desert and then this Dion the who played the teacher he is about to die no? and he calls him to his deathbed and he says I have one confession to make you my son because now he is his disciple for years and years he said remember the night when we met I, I was coming to you to become your disciple because I had lost my faith and I was coming to you so that you can give me moral support and then he said unfortunately you spoke first and you told me you know and then I realized if I say the same to you the devil has got both of us the both of us and he simply said one of us had get crucified, you know, one of us had to sacrifice for the good of both of us. And he said, I didn't say anything, and I came back, and I continued to play the role of Dion Pujil. And now we are both saved, you know, and I can die peacefully. This is an amazing story. Hermann Hesse is a spiritual genius. He understands the spiritual evolution in so many other books, Siddhartha and Narcissus and Goldmund and others, he understands the nature of the quest. Although he was not a guru, but being a writer, he was a writer focused very much on spirituality and aesthetics and higher things and so on. So, we are talking about this aspiration which should not be lost and which sometimes for spiritual practitioners... It raises doubts. It simply says, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it's not. The guru of Ramakrishna, who was a woman, the first guru of Ramakrishna, she told him, my son, blessed is the man or the woman who has this madness. Because indeed it feels like a madness. Like why can't you be happy? Like your uncles and cousins and other people, your classmates from high school, why can't you be happy with what they have? Because they seem to be satisfied with this, sorry to say, subjectively for one like me, with this shitty life which people have to live all day long. For me it's shitty, but for them they say, look, my grandchildren came and visited me like, oh, hooray, you know, I'm going to have a diarrhea of enthusiasm that your grandchildren came to visit you. You know, like, what the fuck is so great in the fact that your grandchildren came to visit you, you know? I have five kittens in my house right now. It seems much more fun when I see the kittens, you know. And so I'm like, what's the big deal? Perhaps I have no empathy. Perhaps I'm a sociopath or a nerd or something. But it's like, I don't enjoy, I can't enjoy what they enjoy. Much as I try to have an open mind, I'm not that kind of person. And the question is, I'm crazy, I'm handicapped, maybe. Maybe. That's why it's good for the spiritual people to be humble, to be modest, 
No, maybe you are. Maybe those people are the normal. You are not because you are sitting here with me instead of drinking margaritas on the beach, you know. So it's like, what the fuck are you doing here with me? I don't know. But maybe those people are the normal ones and they are the salt of the earth. And I am a little bit of damaged goods, you know. It's like, I don't know why I can't be happy with the normal things of life, you know. But so it, it, it's like a madness. But when you look at the statement of Jesus that the tree is known by its fruits, what did Rumi give to humanity? What did Augustine give to humanity? What did Ramakrishna give to humanity? What did Milarepa give to humanity? They gave amazing. What did Buddha give to humanity? Some of Confucius, Lao Tzu, you know, you name them, the list is endless. And some great women among them, Teresa of Avila, and so many others, you know, Laleshwari and Mirabai and others, just to not mention only a club exclusively made of men, you know. And it's like, if it's a madness, then this is the one madness which is positive, which is favorable, which is benign, which is beneficial. Because by the fruits of this tree, it means that this income, maybe we're all incapable, you know, maybe I'm incapable to adapt to the world. I should put my head down and carry a yoke on my neck like an ox and carry the life, you know. But Jesus is telling me something else. Jesus says, take my yoke. He proposes another yoke. Because he says, my yoke is light and good, you know. Everybody in the world is carrying a yoke on their neck. And they are going around and having to be decent citizens, raise a family, do this, work, save money, build a house, be, you know, and be decent also, be moral, ethical, and so on. And life is hard. Life is hard. Then some idiots do financial speculations, then there comes an inflation like it's happening now. People, right now, people stand to lose two-thirds of their money, just like this. Like what money was worth a year ago, in five years it will be worth one-third of it. You know, money will, because they printed money like toilet paper, both in Europe and in America, and so on. So it's like, no, you... People who gather money and who say, I have to pay my income tax and my, you know, they suffer. They suffer. It's a hard life. There's always challenges. You always have to fight hard to make the ends meet. There are a few people who are strong, like probably Elon Musk or Warren Buffett, will not care too much about inflation because they know how to deal with it. And they have so much money that even if you cut them in three, one third of it will still be tons of money. But otherwise, you know, so there are people who maybe are born with a good karma and somehow they don't seem to have too many problems. But for normal people, for most of the people, life is hard. And Jesus says, why don't you prefer my yoke? Like wake up at six o'clock in the morning, do your morning kriyas, then do some prayer, then do this, then do that. And people say, it's too difficult. But to be a father and a grandfather and everything and so on, isn't it difficult also? It is, you know, so the question is, what yoke do you prefer? Which yoke do you prefer to put on your neck, on your back? So, to make the long story short, this madness seems to be the one beneficial madness in this world, the one madness which is worth having. 
And that's why we follow it, because it's common in Judaism for the old prophets, in Christianity for the great saints, in Islam for the Sufi and other great mystics, in Hinduism for many of the gurus and saints, in Buddhism for many of the arhats and bodhisattvas which existed, and even in other religions like in Sikhism and Jainism and so on, everybody had this. Everybody had everybody who was somebody, everybody who did something, they had this urge. And it seems sometimes such a scary urge, so irrational, because it's like you are playing your life on a dice. You go to the roulette and you say, if I get 35 black, I win. And if not, tough luck. You know, then I wasted my life looking for something at the foot of the rainbow and I never touch that rainbow because it keeps running away from me. So, um, let's look more into the discoveries of Rumi as he seeks his soul and he looks at his life and as he tries to understand what is his relationship to the infinite and what can we see from the standpoint of yoga. I will start (coughs) from where I was left last time, hoping to somehow end these beautiful poems. It's a selection of about 20 poems, all in all. He says in the next poem, In my hallucination, I saw my beloved's flower garden. I remind you that when he speaks about a garden, that is the samsara, that is the world. So the flower garden, he sees the world as a flower garden. And he said in a poem before, many have died here searching and they did not find. But those who come as lovers, like when you come with Anahata, then it's not so painful. You find something anyway. It's intuitively more easy. So, and he calls it a hallucination. Like I'm praying, doing Sufi, Allahu, 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 hyperventilating for six hours the whole night. And in the end, it's like I have a hallucination. These states, rising of Kundalini and whatever it is, they are like a hallucination. It's like I'm drunk. It's like I'm dreaming. And therefore, your reason goes even more. They say, of course, you have hyperventilated for five hours, and now you're having some funny perception. But maybe it's because of the hyperventilation, and you just distorted the functioning of your brain and of your senses. So it's not a proof. And he accepts freely. He says, in my hallucination, I was sitting there and hallucinating, spinning for four hours non-stop. I saw my beloved flower garden. I saw the world with the eyes of God. I knew that it belongs to my beloved and I knew it was a flower garden. Not the grotesque samsara. Not the scary, diabolic maya but my beloved's flower garden. In my vertigo, in my dizziness, because he is the father of this dervish dance, so it's obvious that he was doing things like this. In my vertigo, in my dizziness, in my drunken haze, whirling and dancing like a spinning wheel, I saw myself as the source of existence. This is fundamental. It's so discreetly guided there, and that's why the Muslims 
don't like the Sufi mysticism because the Sufi mysticism dangerously comes close to monism, to non-duality. He says, I saw my beloved's flower garden and I saw myself as the source of existence. Like I am that. I am he. There were Sufis who literally said, Mansur stood up in the mosque in the Friday prayer and he said, I am Allah. They killed him on the spot. They killed one of the most precious mystics which they had simply because he opened his big mouth. Then the other Sufi teachers saw it and they said, even if you see that you are one with God, don't talk because the imbeciles don't know. Don't tell them what they don't deserve. It's for you. It's just a secret knowledge for you. Which means that even in religion, there is an esoteric part. There is something which is not said to everybody. There are many esoteric things which the crowds would not tolerate. The crowds would be afraid of it. They would be scared of it. So it's a huge statement to say I danced and prayed and I was spinning and whirling and I saw myself as the source of existence. God is the source of existence. I saw myself no, then people will say, then it means that this whirling and spinning is a very wrong method. Because look, this guy was spinning and then he started being a blasphemer. He started saying, I am the source of existence. Come on, man, go to the psychiatrist, you know. You are not the source of existence. I was there in the beginning, the beginning of time, in the beginning of creation, and I was the spirit of love. So there are three things which he brings together. I, God, creation, and the fourth of them is love. Through love, you can bring together I, God, and the creation of the universe. They are all one at one point. That's a high state of vision. Now, I am sober. Sober is exactly the same word which you use when you went out of the drunkenness. Now I'm sober. Like, I'm not spinning. I took some lunch, and then I'm resting a little bit. So I'm sober. I'm not in that hallucination. I'm not in a state of samadhi. My kundalini is not rising. Now I'm sober. There is only the hangover. So he even describes like when you fall from that state... It's like you ran a marathon and then you have pain in your muscles or something. You are a bit tired. You are wasted. There is a hangover. Swami Vivekananda, the great Vivekananda of India, he describes it very beautifully. He says, you know, it happens in Christianity. People go on Sunday to the church and then social research, even 120 years ago, social research shows that most of the home violence, domestic violence and other things, they happen Sunday afternoon. So people go to the church and a little bit their soul is singing to God, and then they come home and there is a hangover. There is, if there is a hill in the morning, there will be a valley in the evening. Because people are just having a standard spiritual value. And if you tax it more in the morning, then you will have, you'll be more depressed. And therefore people, when they are depressed and so on, it's like a hangover. People do stupid things. So Vivekananda says very clearly, be careful if you have 
great effusions of love, then be careful that there will come a low as a compensation. And during that low, rest, stay put, don't do stupid things. You will see if you will come and do the Mahashivaratri here in Agama or something, or the Shakti festival or something, you know, there is a big rush. And then afterwards, you know, I have given a lot in this. So now I am sober. There is only the hangover. Like I am not in the state. And the memory of love. The memory is there because you are Shiva. You have a consciousness. And it's impossible not to remember. Yesterday, wow. So I have a memory, a nostalgic memory about I was face to face with the truth. And only the sorrow. He feels it like a sorrow because it's a hangover. I have a memory, but I'm not there. And comparatively, there are so many mystics. If you read Bata Narayana and others from Kashmiri Shaivis, they complain. No, they say, why don't I have it again? Oh, when? Oh, my soul is wailing for it. You know, like when you don't have it, you are like a junkie that didn't get his drug. It becomes like a, I was with God. Can I please be always? Because that's my serotonin. That's my endorphin. That's my all and everything, you know, and now I don't have it. So you could say, why don't they do headstand? That's not their lineage. In their lineage, there are ups and downs, moments of full and then moments of hangover. And he says, now I feel only the hangover and the sorrow. I yearn for happiness. I ask for help. I want mercy. What a beautiful interpretation of the, whatever the American Constitution calls the uh, the search for happiness or whatever. The, there is a special formulation that every human being has the right to seek happiness, to search for their own happiness. Because it was thought that only the aristocrats can be happy and the peasants are doomed to work in the fields until they die or something. You know, they are like cattle. And therefore, the American Constitution was having this Marxistic, democratic, egalitarian thing, which is not wrong per se, you know, that everybody has the right to happiness. Everybody has the right to seek happiness. Everybody is a human being and everybody having a soul, they are searching for happiness. So he says, now I feel sorrow and it's normal, therefore I yearn for happiness. Not because I'm a junkie, but because that's what the soul wants. The soul wants to be happy. I yearn for happiness. And he is so humble because he, he could say, yesterday I was with God. You guys don't even understand me, you know. And he says, I ask for help. I want, like, is there somebody who can help me today to go where I was yesterday? No. Like he's humble. He stays humble. He says, I yearn for happiness. I ask for help. I ask, I want mercy. No, like a beggar who says, mercy, mercy, sir. One rupee, one shekel, one whatever coin you have there. Give me one dollar, you know. I ask for mercy. I yearn. It's, he is so 
wonderful in this way, totally coming from the heart, the right attitude, not an angry attitude, not a frustrated. He gives the perfect answer to it. And my love says, no, like what has God got to say about the fact that I am in such a ping pong? Yesterday I saw myself as the source of creation and now I am in a hangover and I yearn for happiness and I ask for mercy and everything, for help. And my love says, look at me and hear me because I'm here just for that. No, Like, there is a consolation, there is a comfort. God says, I'm always here. The fact that you have pluses and minuses like this, that is your instability. It's like Peter of Damascus, I read it once in a satsang, who says it's like the sun and the moon having equinoxes and solstices and the moon go waxing and waning, you know. Nobody is constant. Because of the astrological influences, because of the karma, everybody is having good days and bad days, good periods and bad periods in their life. And God, see, my love says, look at me and hear me because I'm here just for that. No, like the presence of God is constant. We are the ones who are not constant. And sometimes we enjoy it more, sometimes we enjoy it less. But the co- cosmic consciousness is equally available to all of us all the time. I am your moon and your moon, says my love. I am your moon and your moonlight too. Perhaps in Europe they would have used sunshine like Francis of Assisi, brother, son, and sister moon, and all that. But um, in Arabia, as well as in India, it was the moon, because the sun is an object of torture in the tropical desert areas, and nobody really praises the sun, because the sun is a bit too much. And they all the time praise the moon, because the moon on the full moon, especially like now, it's giving shining, And because the sky is clear in the desert areas, most of the time there's seldom clouds, you can see the cloud big, the moon big and shining and crystal clear. And it's one of the most beautiful things because in the night it's cool. You can cool down and therefore it's a beautiful light and coolness and that's very comfortable. That's why they use the moon rather. They say, this woman, she was beautiful like the moon. Why wouldn't you say that somebody is beautiful like the sun? Because the sun is killing you and burning you. And uh, people run away from it. I'm your moon and your moonlight too. I'm your flower garden and your water too. God says I'm your flower garden. That means I am samsara. I am in the world. And your water too. Because water, again, for people living in the desert... Water is one of the great pleasures of life to cool down, to uh, alleviate your thirst. I have come all this way, eager for you, without shoes or shawl. God is saying, I have come to your encounter, because the mystics say, how much spinning dance can you do to reach God? You can spin for 50 years non-stop, and still you don't make merit to see God. Your effort is symbolic, is 1%. And when there is enough of that symbol, then God is making, you make one step, 
God is making 99 steps towards you. So actually, it's God who opens the door and makes it happen. It's a grace. And this grace is telling to him, I came all this way eager for you without shoes or shawl, like in disarray, in a hurry. My child is calling for me. I didn't put on the shoes. I didn't take the shawl. I came eagerly for you. No, the divine is just waiting for you to say something, to do something. Do one step, and 99 steps will be done towards you. No? And therefore, God is said, now you complain, you have the hangover, and you have the sorrow. No, but I have come for you, you know, I'm here for you. You are just tired and therefore a little bit blind. I want you to laugh says God under the form of the beloved. I want you to love, to kill all your worries, to love you, to nourish you. Jesus says, if mortal, ignorant fathers and mothers know how to try to give to their babies and children whatever the babies and children need, how much more God who is omniscient and omnipotent is ready to do anything for you? and to give you what you need, even when you don't know how to say it, and God is ready to give it to you. So he says simply, have a total confidence, have a total surrender. God is coming for you without shoes or shawl, eagerly. You know, he wants you to laugh, to kill all your worries, to wants to love you, and to nourish you, like a parent. That love, you know, our love, is incomplete, partial, and imperfect. But on the side of God, the love is never incomplete or imperfect. The question is how much we can stay with it. Because I feel the hangover, I feel the depression, then I do something stupid. Then I bury myself. I I shoot myself in the foot. Although God is coming for me without shoes and shawl, you know, ready to give me everything. But all I have to do is to trust, to surrender, to keep on, to be there, to stay there on the threshold and to beg like a beggar, to say, I ask for mercy. Oh, sweet bitterness. I will, sweet bitterness. It's sweet and bitter. That's such a beautiful metaphor for bhakti yoga, for the path of the heart or the path of love. As Kahlil Gibran describes it in his wonderful quote about love, it's a sweet bitterness because it's sweet and bitter at the same time. We don't understand how the universe is playing with our soul. When we go on Ajna Chakra, then there is more of a conscious cooperation because you rule You are together with a cosmic mind. You want to see the great mysteries. You participate somehow in what is happening. But in the heart, you are like a child in the arms, a baby in the arms of the mother. You don't really know how she is cleaning you, how she is nourishing you, how she is protecting you, how she is like she's playing ping pong with you. And you just know that in the end of the day, everything is good. Every, it's like a magic. In bhakti yoga, that's one of the characteristics. You surrender 
And God is playing with your soul as you are playing with a little kitten that I was just mentioning. And in the end, all is good. All is good and beautiful. Although the human being, the only merit is that the human being trusts. It has Ishvara Pranidana. It gives itself to God. It surrenders completely and says, Kesera, sera, you know, I will be here. I, you know, I'm giving myself completely to this game. Oh, sweet bitterness, I will soothe you and heal you. I will bring you roses. I too have been covered with thorns. That's a wonderful analogy, microcosm, macrocosm, which says in the beginning, when love is not there, it's like the beautiful rose also has thorns. The rose is a beautiful flower. It's not only beautiful optically, but it's fragrant. But if you catch it the wrong way, it bleeds you. It's covered with thorns. In the same way, the relationship with God in the beginning is thorny. And that's why the divine consciousness says, I will soothe you and heal you. I'll bring you roses. Let's move to another poem illustrating other aspects. As in some days he felt some emotions, he just put them on paper as which was his mood in that day. My hurt is burning with love. Remember he uses the word burning which in the Arab mysticism, as well fathers of the desert and Jewish and so on, it fits because these people have an anahata mixed to a large extent with Manipura. In many of these religions, at least in Judaism and Islam, you see it very clearly. In Christianity, they toned it down. And much of the Christianity was displaced to European countries where they somehow maybe mix it sometimes with Zvadistana, Anahata Zvadistana, but there in those parts of the world, in the Middle East, it's like a lot of fire is included in it. And that's one of their main problems, to discriminate between the passion, which is an egoistic, possessive thing. I want to possess God, I want to tango with God. It's a passion dance. And actually, God is expecting for the heart, because that's where the Jivatman is, that's where the real soul is. When it comes from the heart, that's the right combination, that's the right mystical drink. My heart is burning with love, all can see this flame. Which means, of course, when there are such mystics, you can see that those people are possessed burned from inside by something. You might disagree with what they want to do, but they have their own path. My heart is pulsing with passion, like waves on an ocean. Beautiful metaphors, poetic. No, he says, my heart is pulsing with passion, but passion is not really from the heart. It's from Manipura, from Zvadistana. Passion is a very mixed up word, now to use for the heart. Like waves on an ocean. Again, the same ups and downs. That there is a pulsatory nature 
of the life of the soul. Someday more, someday less. My friends have become strangers. Beautiful. Like such people detach totally from the society and these things. They may keep compassion and the love for the neighbor, but, you know, my friends have turned into strangers. I had a set of friends when I was 19 years of age. Then I started doing yoga a lot. And all my friends have turned into strangers. I meet them now at 40 years after finishing high school or something. And I still consider them my friends. And they have friendship towards me, although I'm a weirdo for them. No? But my friends have become strangers. Like they want to tell me that now they have grandchildren. And again, honestly, I don't give a shit. But I am happy for their happiness. The fact that their eyes are sparkling and that they are smiling, I'm happy for them, you know. I'm saying, look how people can be happy with such trinkets, you know. They are happy because they have one child or two. As I told you, my cat has had five a month ago, you know. It's like, and then if I let her go, she will have five in two months again. You know, she will fill me up with kittens in one year alone, you know. Where is the big glory of just procreating and procreating, you know? And we complain about overpopulation. Soros and whoever, Rockefeller, they want to kill seven billion people on this planet because we eat too much and we fart too much and we shit too much and we destroy the ozone layer of the planet, you know. And it would be better if we were just one billion, they say, you know. So it's like, is it a glory to just procreate like this? No. And, and I'm, again, they are so happy. And I can say I'm happy for your happiness, exactly as if your mother dies or something. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm not sorry for your mother, because your mother is in a better place. But you don't know. And for you, it's a loss. Your ego suffers from that. And therefore, I'm sorry for your loss, because you subjectively are experiencing sorrow. So, he said, my friends have become strangers. Many people, when they come to yoga, this is one of the worst things, you know, because they can't let go. They can't let go. They say, but then I will lose all my friends. What if God is asking this as a prize? What if God is telling you, if you love me, lose all your friends? And worse, he says, and I'm surrounded by enemies. Rumi, many people were trying to play and with Milarepa and with Ramakrishna and so on. So many people were behaving like assholes with these people just because they are weirdos. Weird people. Francis of Assisi, they killed his disciple. They tortured him. He went to the Pope and he said, what the fuck is happening? All I'm trying to do is to be poor and to live by the word of Jesus. And the people feel offended by that and they torture us and they kill us. Am I doing something wrong? Did I misunderstood the words of Jesus? No. It's like, he's right. Rumi is right. It, until today, it is not known that he had a friend, disciple, whatever, Shams al-Tabriz, and he disappeared mysteriously. And it is suspected that some of the jealous disciples of Rumi 
they killed him because Rumi was loving him too much and spending too much time with him. In a spiritual circle? Are you kidding me? Yeah, well, I should tell you what's happening in Agama sometimes. In Romania, we have a proverb which says all the demons have run into the monastery. Because people who live in monasteries, like in ashrams in India, they are witnessing hell. The worst human things are coming up like those people are under such a pressure and the demons exert such a pressure that it's ten times worse than outside. Outside, at least there are some assholes, and so on, but also there are people who leave you alone and you can live your life and mind your own business and so on. In Islam, the first seven followers of the Prophet Muhammad, they were all murdered. Ali and all these guys that you hear about, I'm not so good at the history of Islam. No, all of them were murdered. Like what? Did you take the blood relatives of Muhammad and you are jealous that they were the next caliph or imam or whatever and then you killed them? Like put a knife in the back of Ali? Are you nuts? And those are supposed to be prophets of God, you know, lineage. They were blood relatives of Muhammad himself. People are crazy. And in spirituality, some of these things amplify terribly. You know, all those of you who have been part of the 2018 events in Agama and others, you have seen it with your own eyes. No, it's like the devil is dancing, you know, it's like it's incredible. So, my, not only that my friends have become strangers, but I'm also surrounded by enemies. Because everybody who is a bit demonic considers me a threat, considers me a problem, considers me, you know, they go to the full moon party and they get stoned. And then I'm going to them and I'm saying, yesterday you behaved like a pig, you smoked marijuana and you stoned you. Then I'm the enemy. Because I'm exposing the demonic part. No? Because I am not making any compromise with it. And therefore, you know, how many people consider Jesus the enemy? Probably more than 50% of the Jewish society. That's why it became possible to crucify him. Because people said, no, no, give us Barabbas. At least Barabbas is a patriot. He is one of us. He drinks, he shits, he does all the stupid things. He's one of us. But this Jesus, he's so precious and so pure that we always feel guilty before him. Fuck the bastard, crucify him. You know, like I'm surrounded by enemies. Jesus was surrounded by enemies. So was Krishna. So was Buddha. So the fact that there are a few crazy people around who say, no, no, you are a wonderful person. It's like, yeah, but also surrounded by enemies. Buddha, they tried to assassinate him. Local kings, when he was passing by, they were so irritated by his authority that they tried to assassinate him three times or four times. It's in the life of the Buddha. Like, who would try to assassinate Buddha, for God's sake? Jesus, at least, was a firebrand. He went into their face and he said, you are hypocrites, you are lying, you are not going to God and you don't let other people go to God. He was provocative. But Buddha was not attacking the social order too much. He simply said, unfortunately, most people are blinded by samsara, 
and they don't want to look for nirvana. And so, even for this, he became the enemy. They tried to murder him, not once, several times. No, this is the demonic. And in Kali Yuga, in the last thousands of years, it becomes impossible. That's what humanity does to all the prophets and to all the mystics. Tries to assassinate them. No, if you don't want to be assassinated, you have to go live alone in a mountain. You know, where people will not know about your existence, you know. Go in the Himalayas and maybe somebody will not come and try to be your enemy for what you do. But, on the other hand, yes, I, my friends have become strangers and I'm surrounded by enemies. But I'm free as the wind, no longer hurt by those who reproach me. The prize is the freedom. Yoga immortality and freedom. I'm free as the wind. Like I don't have to give accounts to anybody. I do what I want, when I want. And if I want to do something in the society, I do it by the rules of the society. And if I don't want, I don't do it. And if I'm pissed off at the society, I'm going and telling it straight to their face. You know, you are a bunch of hypocrites and so on. No longer hurt by those who reproach me. Which means a person like Rumi, he says, I don't care about what people say about me. People reproach me. Uh, Rumi, you caused a lot of strife in my family because my wife believes in you, but um, then she's not doing my laundry well anymore. You know what? I'm not hurt by those who reproach me. You can blame me for whatever. Swamiji, you are having sex with your know, Am I hurt by those who reproach me? No, not at all. No, I'm free as the wind and not hurt by those who reproach me. That is the great gift that you get a state of consciousness where you can say, well, this, this crazy person is also irresponsible. They don't even care anymore. Yeah. It's okay. Consider it a form of insanity. If that makes you happy, consider it a form of insanity. I'm at home wherever I am. Amazing gift, right? I'm at home wherever I am. A Christian mystic, I forgot his name, he was thrown by one of the Roman emperors in prison and he was lucky because they would have assassinated him. But there were too many martyrs. He threw him in prison. And as soon as he got in prison, this was an old man, you know, and he said, brothers, no, he said, sorry, I'm a Christian. I'm doing my prayers and my things. I will even serve the mass. I'll make a little table here. There was a salt mine. It was a prison which was in a dungeon and they were working in a salt mine. Extermination camp, you know, Roman style prison. Destruction. And he said, those of you who want to know something about Christ, Come and ask me, I'll tell you. Those of you who want to get baptized, I'll baptize you in the name of Christ. No, he said, please don't be offended. I'm not doing anything. In a month, half of the prison was baptized and they were having six religious services per day, like in a monastery. You know, people were doing more prayer than digging for salt. And then the emperor had to release him. He said, Maximus, or whatever the name of this dude was, he says, get out because you turned my prison into a monastery. No, like this people, this person could be stopped only if they killed him. Otherwise, he was at home even in prison. No. When they put Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh 
the Rolls-Royce guru Osho called later when they put him in prison in America, a journalist came to tease him and they said, Osho, what do you say now that you are in prison? And he said, they can throw me even in hell, but they cannot take the paradise out of my heart. He said, in my heart I am in paradise. You put me in terrible conditions, like Rumi says, I am at home wherever I am. Because I am I, I am myself, I found myself, and therefore the rest is external circumstances are more pleasant, more unpleasant, it happens. And in the room of lovers, I can see the room of lovers like a space, in that space of love, I can see with closed eyes, which means internally, the beauty that dances. God is beautiful. And he can see through the eye of love, in the room of lovers, as he beautifully calls it, in the mystical space, he can see the beauty that dances. Behind the veils, intoxicated with love, I too dance the rhythm of this moving world. The whole world is dancing the dance of God, but they don't realize. Rumi realizes, and he says, I also, intoxicated with love, like he is drunk, I too dance the rhythm of this moving world. The world is moving and it's moving because God is alive and it moves. This spirit moves the world. And he concludes with two beautiful verses where he says, I have lost my senses in my world of lovers. Like, you know, externally, people say, have you lost your senses? The next one is exactly about this fire of love. He talks about this dichotomy that his love has something torturing. This desire which comes from Manipura is giving pain. Only the pure love from Anahata does not. And he said, my heart is on fire. In my madness, I roam the desert. Like, it's exactly like you are possessed. It's exactly like you are in, uh, in the language of Ayurveda. It's like too, hey, you have too much vata, dosha. You know, I roam the desert. I'm like uh, all over the place, you know, because I am in a trance. I'm possessed. I'm looking for something. The flames of my passion, flames, he uses the fire element a lot, devour the wind and the sky. Because this is how the fire goes. When there is a big fire, it seems to devour the sky and the wind. My cries of longing, my wails of sorrow are tormenting my soul. Because that is the doom of the bhakti yogis. It's never enough. Oh God, when will you give me more? When will you show yourself to me? And if you have shown yourself for five minutes, when will you show yourself to me for 25 minutes? And if you showed yourself to me for 25 minutes, when will you show yourself to me for one day and one night, non-stop? And all that. No? So it's basically always wailings, cries of sorrow. When you read the story of mysticism, of bhakti mysticism, 
from different religions, you find out that this is typical. Because you can say, why don't they do some pranayama? To keep their heart chakra open, 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 sublime, 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 more, 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 more. That works for the yogis. That is one of the privileges of yoga. One of the huge privileges of yoga, which many people who do yoga don't realize, that you have a technology, a mystical technology, to keep the fire alive. And it all depends on your willpower. If you have the willpower and the steadiness, you can go and go and go and go and yoga gives you methods. You lost your vitality, you go and do kundalini yoga and do mahamudra and there, there is your vitality again. And then you can go for another 15 hours, you know. It's like you have these people in monasteries or whatever, in Sufi dargas, they didn't have and therefore they were having good moments, bad moments, and in the bad moments was like, oh, where are you, where are you, oh God, you know, and I want more, and so on, you know. There were moments of plus and moments of minus, and because it's coming from the heart, as I told you, you don't have the understanding. I try to give you an understanding at the level of Ajna Chakra, but in the heart, it's like, you know, don't tell me that my mom is gone to earn money to buy me milk for dinner. I want my mom, you know, I'm just an unconscious child and I'm going like, eh, mommy, 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 you know, it's like, hey, mommy is working, wait, and I don't have any understanding, you know, it's just from the heart, it's just like, ah, I simply want, I cry. So my cries of longing, mystics like Ramakrishna and others, they have cried a lot, my wails of sorrow are tormenting my soul. That's why Kahlil Gibran says, when you experience full love, it will also give you tears. It's impossible not to have tears on the path of bhakti. Sometimes tears of happiness, and sometimes he says, my wails of sorrow, my cries of longing, simply because I don't get enough of the ambrosia. I don't get enough of the liquid of immortality, you know. It seems I don't have enough love to love God 24 hours non-stop. And I can have two good hours now and two good hours tomorrow, but I want more. So I have cries of longing, wailings of sorrow are tormenting my soul, you know, because they come from the authentic, from the depth. You, now the attitude of God is wonderful because he can perceive it, you wait patiently. God has all the patience in the universe. You wait patiently, looking into my intoxicated eyes. It's like I'm a drunk person asking for a hug. Ah, give me a hug, daddy. You know, and it's like you look at me like, what a fool, you know. It's beautiful, and at the same time is a bit pathetic, you know. It's like you look into my eyes, look into my intoxicated eyes. You accept my passion. Like, okay, your love is not perfect. You are making too much noise. There should be serenity. No, you should come with the real love. You should love me, says God, as I love you with patience. No, like forever and ever. And he says, you accept my passion. Because as imperfect as it is, that's all I can give. I can give passion because passion I have. You accept my passion with the serenity of love. Love is characterized by serenity, not by passion. Please understand this. When you want to evaluate yourself, if you feel aspiration and you have serenity, 
That's the real cocktail. It's the real combination. If you have aspiration and you are crying and wailing and you are intoxicated and it's passion, God will accept it because he knows that you can't give better than that. But it's an acceptance. It's like, okay, I can put up even with this. If a child is giving you a shitty gift, you smile and compassionately tap it on, pat it on the head because you know that the intention was burned up in your heart by the beauty of the intention. So God is happy if your intention was good. And he says, you accept my passion with the serenity of love. I'm passionate and God is serene. What a difference. I'm passionate, like, now give it to me. And God is serene. I've got all eternity. There is no past, present, and future. There's no hurry. There's There's just the serenity of love. And he concludes beautifully by saying, you are the master of existence. Like, it's not my love which matters. It's your patient and serene love. You are. You wait patiently. You accept with the serenity of love. He accepts. He knows you are. You are right, not me. And he says, you are the master of existence. One day, I shall be a lover like you. That's fantastic. You know, to learn to love like God. Okay, now I'm just human, but bless me, sanctify me, Rise me at the level of Shambhala. Rise me at the level of enlightenment. And one day, I promise to try to be a lover like you. One day, I shall be a lover like you. Like, I will also learn to love with serenity. You pray today to Rumi or to Swami Shivananda. They look at you with serenity. Because they have been transformed. They are paid. Maybe when they were disciples, they had passion and they were intoxicated. Now they have learned the side of God. And they can give you the serenity of love. And all you can do is say, you are the master of existence. One day I shall be a lover like you. It's an amazing promise. I all hope that one day you will become lovers like the master of existence. One poem where he speaks from the voice of God. He says, I am your lover. Come to my side. I will open the gate to your love. Like, you know, you love somebody and they don't love you back then it's very disappointing, love. But look, God is promising. God is saying, come, I will open the gate to your love. Rumi promises from God, if you come, I'm your lover. Come to my side, and I will open the place. You say, what if I go to God, and then I discover God doesn't love me? Very naive. Very mistrustful. No, you have to surrender. Ishvara, come to my side. I'm your lover. I will open the gate to your love. Come settle with me. Let us be neighbors to the stars. The stars are the first forms of consciousness. 
in this universe, especially the old stars, what the astronomers call the old stars, the proto-stars, the ones which have since long exploded, compressed, exploded, and created the mutation of the elements that we went from hydrogen to iron and sulfur and all the elements from the universe. And let us be neighbors to the stars is a wonderful intuition of the fact that the stars are the devas. They are the consciousness of the devas and perhaps of the greater devas of the deities and they are the fundamental existences, the causal world. They are the background of creation. And a solar system like ours is just the product of one of these stars, which is relatively a young star. Our sun is considered to be one of the new stars, one of the younger stars. And in this solar system, there is a cradle for life. And here we are. He says, settle with me, let us be neighbors with the stars. It's inviting the human beings to a much greater level of existence, you know. Drop your human life and become like the stars. Have the consciousness of the stars. You have been hiding so long, aimlessly drifting in the sea of my love. The universe is the sea of love of God. Either you see it or not. You say a tsunami came and killed a quarter of a million people. That's the sea of love of God. There is a holocaust and God loves everybody. How? It's not possible to understand with the human calculations and machinations, with the human mind. How is it? Who did God love? The Germans or the Jews or the Russians in the Second World War? Funnily, God loved everybody. But it's not possible to see it with the mind because you say then God would have favored one of them or the other. Then why did they die with the tens of millions and so on? No, it's not about that. He, whoever tries to understand the cosmic consciousness by human standards will fail because the, the cosmic consciousness has an in, entirely different values. Even Jesus says to Peter, you think like men think. But God thinks in a different way. According to Peter, Jesus should not have gone to Jerusalem and then he would not have been crucified. But Jesus tells him, but God thinks in a different way. So I have to be crucified. Humans put other things there. So he says, you have been hiding so long, aimlessly drifting in the sea of my love, aimlessly drifting. What do the yogis do? They are not drifting aimlessly. They are doing a hundred Udhyana Bandhas per day and therefore they swim because they want to get somewhere. They want to get here. They is not aimless anymore. It has a direction. But people who just drift, you know, oh, I've got a dog and a car and a this and that and a family and this aimlessly drifting. You do that for thousands of lifetimes. So he said, you've been hiding so long. Like when you have these lives without Ishvara Pranidhana, without aspiration, you are aimlessly drifting. And it lasts so long. God patiently, remember he is very patient, he waited for you for thousands of lifetimes. 
that you take the finger out of your ass and you open your eyes and you start swimming in his direction. You are not drifting aimlessly. You are still on the sea of love. But you see how painful this sea of love can be? Inflation, true or fake pandemics, holocausts and wars and tsunamis and all the shit is there, you know? The sea of love of God is making people evolve through pain, through trial and error. You bang your head against the wall, you learn that it's painful and you shouldn't do it again. And still you bang your head against the wall five, six, ten times until it simply becomes too much. How many people don't repeat the same mistake again and again and again and again? No? So he says, you've been hiding so long. Now is the moment of truth. You know, you discover, come to me. Otherwise you're aimlessly drifting in the sea of my love. Even so, you have always been connected to me. Even those who aim aimlessly drift, they are connected to God because they have the consciousness of God inside in their hearts. It's there. God is in you. And therefore, you are connected. But what use is that to the tens of millions who died in the Second World War or in the First World War, or to the people who died of the cholera and plague and a million other things, either persecutions or simply human pains and epidemics and other and other things. That's why, you know, you are connected. That's a comfort. It's a consolation. But it's little consolation because it doesn't do much. You still suffer even if in a secret way you are connected to God. That's why the yogis say, let's reach nirvana now in this lifetime. So we don't drift aimlessly because we will remain connected. But then another hundred lifetimes, it will mean another 8,000 years of pain. Another 8,000 years or 400 years between two lives, another 40,000 years of pain. Now, why prolong the agony? You are connected, but what's the consolation? That you are that's a great consolation that fortunately, even when you aimlessly drift, you are still connected. God never loses you of his sight. He's aware of you. You don't believe in God, but God believes in you, as somebody has said. No? It's like yes. So even so, you've always been connected to me. Concealed, revealed, in the known, in the unmanifest. Beautifully. Concealed, revealed. Like sometimes you are openly searching for God. Maybe very feeble, but still sometimes concealed. Like you are completely not. No, I'm not a religious person. No, I don't care about this. and so Concealed. Concealed or revealed. Either you are atheistic or not. Even the atheists are with God. They are connected with God. Because otherwise they couldn't be alive. No, there is the soul, the spirit of God is there. But it's concealed. Concealed, revealed. In the known, in the unmanifest. In the known can mean in the physical life. And in the unmanifest, even when you don't have a body. And you are not in the physical world. You float like a spirit out there in the astral world. Still you are connected to me. All the time, 
from the beginning till the end. No? Then that's why the yogis simply say, then why not now? Why not now? So God continues. I am life itself. It's a beautiful, you know, it's like I remember in the communist times, people out of hypocrisy, because you could not mention God in the Marxistic communistic society, they were having songs, you know, like I cannot even translate to you some of those songs um, because, again, it's difficult, it's poetry. And they would sing songs, they would say, Happy birthday, happy birthday, may life give you everything uh, that you wish and that you need, and so on. It's not life, it's God. But people were ashamed to call it God or afraid. And then they say, May life give you a who is life? Life Anderson. I was making fun when I lived in Denmark because life is a Scandinavian name, you know. Who life? Life the Viking. Who? You know? May life give you everything. What a hypocrisy, you know? Why not call it directly God? May the universal consciousness give you because it gives you, it's an active act. It gives you something. May life give you everything. Yeah, sure. Hide behind the finger and pretend there is no divine consciousness, you know. God says, I am life itself. Jesus says, I am the truth, the life, and the path. No. Life. I am life itself, says Rumi, with the voice of God. You have been a prisoner of a little pond. I sometimes say that people seem to live in a cup of tea. Their world is this small. And they say, you know, Walter has stolen my bicycle. Yeah, and meanwhile, Putin is killing 10,000 people per day or whatever, you know. What the fuck does your bicycle matter? You know, if you live in a cup of tea, the fact that a neighbor pissed on your fence is such an offense and such a, you know. But your life is so small. There are, you know, and you know that every day 30,000 children die of starvation, most of them in Africa. 30,000. They complained that 3,000 people died in the Twin Towers. But 3,000 was a tenth of what died in the same day out of hunger. No? And we all, me too, don't think that I'm uh, such a holy person. You know, I'm going to the mall when I'm in Bucharest and I'm going and watching a movie. And I'm taking myself a Pepsi or whatever, you know. 30,000 children have died in that day. I should be red in my face and roll on the floor with tears. But unfortunately, I cannot acutely feel those 30,000 children who died horribly. And because of this, I lie to myself and I live a fake life. Yes, Jesus said you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. If I would love the children from Africa as I love myself, I wouldn't be able to be happy. I would be in tears every day because today, that's data from the Oxfam and the others from the United Nations. Today it is considered that up till 30,000 children died today and another 30,000 will die tomorrow. And every single day of this year, 30,000, make the calculation how many millions die in one year of hunger, horrible death, horrible death, painful death. Do we do something? We pretend it doesn't exist. Then 10 people died in Ukraine. 
Ah, it's such a crime against humanity. What about the 30,000 who died of hunger? The human hypocrisy is something insane, you know. You have been a prisoner of a little pond. There is a philosophical poem, one of the greatest poets, if not the greatest poet in, in Romania, who is, you know, a god, a deity, is talking to a little girl who is having a love affair with some boy. And he says, living in your little narrow circle, he describes their life like you guys live in a little narrow circle. No, that's what your life is. You don't think, you don't, you are not concerned about what's happening in this galaxy or in this, you know. It's all hypocrisy. Even on our planet, people die. And, you know, they, they screamed about the war in Ukraine. Now, if you go wherever, to Berlin, to London, to Bucharest, to whatever, people are going to the mall. They are having parties. You know, just a few hundred kilometers away, people are being invaded and killed. It's like, uh, what? People still have wedding parties. People still have, you know, how much do we really care? Oh, that's why he is right, you know. You have been a prisoner of a little pond. Our lives are just a narrow little circle. We care that our neighbor, oh, this morning he looked so weirdly at me, I think he hates me. That's your life, that some neighbor has looked in a weird way at you and he dislikes you. Take a plane ticket and go to Argentina Go in the middle of the pampas and be alone there. Don't care about anybody. You know, you, you, are, you care that the neighbors are gossiping about me. They can kiss my ass. I can take a boat and sail on the Pacific Ocean for months. At this, you know, not seeing anybody, not caring. You know, your life, you've been a prisoner of a little pond. And says God, I am the ocean on the other hand. What's a pond compared to the ocean? It's, the ocean is everything, is the totality, no? So God says, I'm life itself. You've been a prisoner of a little pond. I am the ocean and its turbulent flood. Yeah, the ocean is turbulent. A pond is not. But an ocean can have storms and amazing things. So the ocean is a much bigger level. Now, Jesus, when he got crucified... That was the turbulent flood. That was a big, major event which left marks in the history of this planet for 2,000 years, you know. So you, you live in a little pond, but I, I'm offering a bigger life. I'm calling you to a bigger life. I am the ocean and its turbulent flood. Come merge with me. God actively tells you through the mouth of Rumi, come Merge with me. Merge. Merge. Become one. Leave this world of ignorance. That's the invitation. It's very clear. You want to live in a cup of tea? You want to be the prisoner of a little pond? Or you want to think big? As people think big, but really, really think big. Because people who say think big, they usually refer to business, to enterprise, to things like this. It's better to think big in that way than to live in a cup of tea. But you can think even bigger. I'm the ocean and its turbulent flood. Come, let us be neighbors with the stars.
Come merge with me. Leave this world of ignorance. Here, he is purely Vedantic, you know. He says, people live in Maya. It's a world of ignorance. Ignorance is the cause. And he uses the dangerous word, merge. Come merge with me. When you merge, you become one and the same. Which is very monistic and very dangerous. And he concludes by saying, be with me. I will open the gate to your love. It's a promise. Like, don't think you will love me and I will not love you back and you will get cheated. I am not the one to, to cheat people. I am not the one to kind of disappoint people's expectations. Come, be with me. I will open the gate to your love. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. Dare. The only thing which you have to do is to dare. Real poetic mood. Poem. The sky was lit by the splendor of the moon. The moon is the visible symbol of God, like something beautiful, luminous, but not painful like the sun in the daytime, which burns and scorches. The moon is a friendly light. The sky was lit by the splendor of the moon. That's why they have the moon, the crescent of the moon, on Islamic flags and so on. For them, the moon is the better symbol of the light of God. So powerful, I fell to the ground. The sky was lit by the splendor of the moon. So powerful, I fell to the ground. It happens sometimes to these mystics which do the spinning dance for them, feeling falling to the ground. It's a bit dramatic. It's a bit uh, drama, typical Arabic drama. It's sweet in a way, but it's beautiful as well. Your love has made me sure. Not like, I, I dare, because I feel some of your love. You know, everybody says, how do you dare to risk your life? To Your love has made me sure. Like, I, I actually am sure. I'm ready to forsake this worldly life and surrender to the magnificence of your being. This is purely Ishvara Pranidhana, because Ishvara Pranidhana means surrendering to God. Giving oneself to God. He says exactly that. I'm ready to forsake this worldly life. Like I will not have a worldly life. And surrender to the magnificence of your being. Is it enough? For the mystics it's more than enough. But you have to see what your heart tells. Another poem a couple of, I'll go, and then we will conclude as well. There is one of the beautiful, beautiful one which I wanted to share with you. Maybe also some other time. I can see it's about 12 pages from here. I don't think I'll reach that far. It's one of the last ones in this little booklet. So maybe there will be a third session. Maybe not next week, but let's see. I cannot promise anything. I desire you more than food or drink. So many mystics have fasted, have refrained from drinking water even for long times. I desire you more than food and drink. Put your money where your mouth is. 
No? Like, would you be able to sacrifice your food one day for God? If you love God more than food, then yes. If not, uh, it's like, eh, how can I give up food when I love food so much? It's like, you decide. But it's not only words. Put your money where your mouth is, you know? I desire you more than food or drink. My body, my senses, my mind, hunger for your taste. Although we do not experience God with our senses and with our body and mind, nevertheless there is an echo in the body and in the mind, in the koshas, in the five bodies. There is an echo of the states of samadhi, and therefore even the body and the senses, they feel something. Your body, will, your brain will produce serotonin, endorphins, DMT, God knows what. And even physically, you will be like, oh, I've been blessed. You know, it's, it's a good, it's a state of good being. So that's why he is right. Although the state of spirituality is not in the body, he simply says, my body, my senses, my mind hunger for your taste. Are you comfortable? If not, take a chair, don't be ashamed. I can sense your presence in my heart, although you belong to all the world. Again, the paradox. This is the end of jealousy. I love you, and I don't want you to love anybody else, and I don't want anybody else to love you. Can you do that with God? Everybody loves God. And it's the same God. And he says, I can sense your presence in my heart. I love you. Although you belong to all the world. Willy-nilly, you have to share God with the whole universe. Can you be jealous that you and Rumi have loved the same God and maybe the bastard loved him more than you do? And maybe God loved him more than he loves you? That's jealousy. It shows the absurdity of jealousy. That in a perfect love, there cannot exist jealousy. Jealousy is just the sign of an imperfect love. A perfect love is like, I feel you in my heart, but you belong to all the world. The same. I love a woman, but she belongs to all the world. If that woman is a saint, a mystic, if that woman is a super beautiful woman, if that woman is whatever, a genius, a writer, or something, she belongs to all the world. I love her, and so does the rest of the world. No, it's like, to be jealous is absurd. It's not part of love. It's part of the passion and of the desire in Zvadistana, in Manipura. It's not part of Anahata. I can sense your presence in my heart, although you belong to all the world. I I wait with silent passion for one gesture, one glance from you. I can see it sometimes with my dogs, you know. They are there and I ignore them most of the day. And when I come and give them a little attention, just touch them, they are so happy. They are so grateful. Exactly like those dogs await for a gesture of kindness from me, exactly in the same way Rumi is like the puppy of God. You know, he says, I wait with silent passion, passion, he doesn't call it love, passion, 
for one gesture, one glance from you. So much humbleness, you know, it's like, I don't want to take all your time. You belong to all the world. I wait for just one glance, one gesture from you. It would be enough. You are giving me enough, because you are giving me everything through that. Love cannot be shared in an egoistic way. Perhaps the last for tonight. Let's see how the energy feels. A lover asked his beloved, Do you love yourself more than you love me? Now, who of them is God is difficult to say. The one who asks or the one who is asked. But usually the human being doesn't know and they want to have an answer from God who is omniscient. And therefore, a lover asked his beloved. The beloved was God. And a devotee asked of God, Do you love yourself more than you love me? Does God love himself more than he loves you? That's the nature of love. Yeah, it's about the nature of love. It's again showing the absurdity of people who try to measure love. The beloved replied, I have died to myself and I live for you. Just like a parent who says, I'm dead, I live for my child. That's why this love, which some parents have for their children, is sometimes very pure especially the maternal love, which is so organic that the woman gives milk from her own body. She gives her energy. She gives everything, you know. It's almost to death. She loves that child organically almost to death. And the beloved God replied, I have died to myself and I live for you. So much love, yeah. I have disappeared from myself and I'm my attributes. I'm present only for you. Because God, in his pure nature, he is detached. The Kashmiri Shaiva say that Shiva can turn away from the manifestation and look the other way, being completely detached. Like, yeah, I'm playing the game of manifesting the universe, but I can also turn away from it. You know, it's like... It's not that I'm bound by it. I have the freedom still. Therefore, in the Vedantic way, Purusha is transcendental. It's out of this world, unmanifested, you know. And God says, I have disappeared from myself and my attributes. There are no attributes in Purusha. I'm present only for you. God manifests for you in this mirror, in this mirroring. And now he changes. He, as he speaks like here, then you don't know who is speaking. Because now what he says is valid for the disciple. It's valid for the seeker. He says, I have forgotten all my learnings. But from knowing you, I have become a scholar. Like in the story of St. Joseph of Cupertino, who was an idiot, almost illiterate. And he became a doctor in theology. Because every time when they asked him something, he got the spontaneous knowledge. He just knew one wonderful parable from the Bible. When he went to the exam to become a Catholic priest, which was really strict, they asked him exactly that one thing which he knew. 
And the bishop said, this young man is brilliant. And he was a cowherd in his monastery. He was tending to the animals in the stables. He was dirty of cow caca all day long and stinking and working really hard work. And when he was praying, he was levitating in mid-air. He was lifted literally in mid-air by the power of his prayer. So intense his prayer was. So that's why he says, I have forgotten all my learnings. Who, Who is a learned man before God? Before the universal consciousness. But from knowing you, I have become a scholar. Yogananda Paramahamsa confesses that he studied very poorly in university. Very poorly, because he was doing yoga with Yukteswar, and he was not interested. And Yukteswar insisted, he said, you have to finish the college. Later you'll understand why. And he understood, because when he went to America, people asked him, what education do you have? And he said, well, I am a graduate of the Calcutta College. And people say, okay, you are having a college degree, we can listen to you. Like people were snobbish. And Yukteswar could see it. He said, you go to the West, you need some good education to have a good vocabulary, to have a good general culture. And Yogananda says, I studied very poorly. And the little which I studied, when I was going to pass the exams, the teachers were asking me exactly those little things which I had studied in the previous day. And he said, he said, honestly, I'm not prepared to be a college graduate. But by a miracle from my guru and from God, I somehow managed to graduate the college. And then for the people in America, it didn't matter. They didn't know the story. And they said, oh, yeah, okay. There is this man, he's well-educated, he's articulated, he has a good language, and so on. No? So, I have forgotten all my learnings. But from knowing you, I have become a scholar. So many learned people went to monasteries and to theology, you know, and then they were brilliant. They gave up everything, engineering, whatever they had studied before, you know, but they became a scholar from the knowledge of God. I have lost all my strength, but from your power, I'm able Try to meditate on this. I've lost, you know, like religious people, they don't rely on strength. I am strong like Napoleon or something like I'm not strong. And yet they have done acts of heroism. Acts of, you think about Mother Teresa, a little girl who was waking up at five o'clock every morning to cook for hundreds of people. And, you know, and she was persecuted and misunderstood and mistrusted and so on. That little woman worked until she was 80-something and so on. How strong she was. And it's, I've lost all my strength, but from your power, I'm able. I'm somehow sustained miraculously by this faith, by this love, by this surrender. And then there's one of the strophes, the last of this poem, which I love to repeat sometimes. It's one of the outstanding ones. He says, if I love myself, I love you. If I love you, I love myself. This is exactly what the guru of the guru of Swami Lakshman, Swami Ram in Kashmiri Shaivas said. 
He said, if you truly would love yourself, it's okay. Because you love Shiva, you love God, which you see inside you. Augustine, one of the Catholic saints from the early Christianity, he said it in an amazing way. Amazing. And when you look at it, you will see he was right. He said, if you truly, because he says at some point, love God and do what you want. And people say, how, what do you mean, do what you want? No, because he said the love, that love, if it's authentic, it won't let you do anything wrong. And then he explains, no, because he received objections to it. And he explains, and he said, if you would truly love yourself, you would want to give yourself the greatest gift. If you loved yourself, it would be nothing wrong with pampering yourself. Oh, I love myself. What's the greatest gift? The greatest gift is immortality. Because if you die, everything was a big bummer. You know, you lost. No, So it's like, what's the greatest gift? The greatest gift is immortality. So if you truly love yourself, why don't you fucking want to save yourself? Save yourself if you, to prove that you love yourself. But isn't that selfish? Yeah, it's okay, be selfish that way. Be selfish and save yourself, please. Give yourself the gift of immortality. Then you are going to see that egoistic people, they don't love themselves. Egoistic people are self-destructive. They smoke, they drink, they do all the things to die, to die, to die. They are secretly self-destructive and suicidal. If you love yourself, save yourself. Give yourself the greatest gift. Yeah, but I love my neighbors. Yeah, but you love yourself. Can you see God in yourself? If not, you are in ignorance. And thus, Rumi says an amazing thing. He says, if I love myself, I love you. And if I love you, I love myself. Beautiful. Beautiful teaching. I see that it's past 10.30, so I would say to give you the time for tonight. There is more. I evaluated in a mistaken way. There are more poems for one session. Again, I don't promise I'll have to meditate and see what I feel about it. If I do that next week, again, or if I skip and I find another subject that I feel I want to bring before you. You have been, we have been now for three weeks in the heart with the fathers of the desert and with Rumi, with this bhakti, with this aspiration, with this incredible Ishvara Pranidhana, which these people teach, pass on to us. Thank you all for joining tonight. Hope to see you further in other activities here in Agama.